Hear the word of God from Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, whoever you are, when you judge another. For in passing judgment upon him you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, are doing the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who do such things. Do you suppose, O man, that when you judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Do you not know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But by your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. For he will render to every man according to his works, to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are factious and do not obey the truth, but obey wickedness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. All who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. When Gentiles who have not the law do by nature what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that, the law require, that what the law requires is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or perhaps excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. May we ask for God's illuminating power. Break in upon these cold hearts of ours, O God, and penetrate them with the warmth and force of thine own spirit that seeing the truth we may perceive it, and hearing it we may understand it. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. When we broke off our course of messages on the letter to the Romans, we had finished chapter 1 with its wondrous exposition of the glory of the gospel of God. And then it's very graphic and dismal picturing of the need of the gospel, namely the reality of human sinfulness. Now when Paul picks up at chapter 2, he is not any longer going to prove or demonstrate the reality of human sin, but he's assuming it. And assuming it, he goes on to show what are its dreadful consequences. And 
one of the great consequences, of course, and the one that is preeminent in this section, verses 1 to 16, is that the sin of man provokes inevitably the judgment of God. And so the prevailing theme of these verses is God's judgment. As you listen to how Paul weaves and describes the judgment of God, a theme terrible in itself, you begin to realize that Paul does not treat it terribly, but he treats it with love, giving its principles and bases and even its beauty. And you say, what is happening here? You find out that the Apostle Paul is cherishing the judgment of God. And that is a strange way to approach something we normally dread. That then might form the teaching of these verses, that the judgment of God is to be cherished, not evaded, because it is the basis of our hope. Could that sentence find its way into our memory and heart? The judgment of God is to be cherished, not evaded, because it is the basis of our hope. Now for the children who are here, let me describe a bit this word cherished, in case it is new to you. The word originally meant to warm something. And so a husband promises to cherish his bride, he promises to keep her warm basically. That means to hold her and to keep her warm emotionally and spiritually and every other way. Are you cherishing your wife? Cherish for the young people means to hold dearly with fondness and affection in your heart. To hold something very deeply and resolutely in your spirit and to look upon it with reverence and love. And so the believer is to hold the righteous judgment of God in his heart with great warmth and affection, even with fondness and endearment. We're used to doing this with the love of God, how we have savored his love as we ought, how we have sung of it in our hymns, and spoken of it to one another and pictured it in the smiling faces. God loves you. We have cherished his love and we should. But his judgment is also a part of his being. And not to cherish it is to lose the basis of our hope. Why cherish God's judgment? Now this passage gives us Five reasons for cherishing the judgment of God. The first is that it is utterly righteous. That is, in the judgment of God there is perfect fairness and purity, a transparent honesty. Nothing phony about the judgment of God. It can be depended upon. And if you look in your scriptures to find support for that, you will be overwhelmed. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? 
Or Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. He is a rock. His ways are perfect. All his ways are justice. He is without iniquity. Just and right is he. Or when Job, speaking to his friend, says, Shall the Almighty pervert justice? Shall God pervert judgment as if it were utterly impossible? And David, who knew God well, said in Psalm 19, verse 9, The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So we can count upon God's judgments. They are constant. They will not change. They are predictable. The judgments of God are utterly righteous. And there's a reason for the cherishing of them. Now the passage goes on to show that another reason for loving God's judgments is the way in which God judges by reality, not by imaginings. And we have a couple of verses in this passage that make that very clear. In verse 6, for example, he will render to every man according to his works. And uh, over in verse 13, it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Now, we can have imaginings and supposings in our hearts about the judgment of God, and we can dream ourselves into a right place with God. But when he actually judges it, it will not be on human imaginings, but on what is actually there. He will not judge the bottle by its label, but by its contents. That's what is meant. He will render to every man according to his works. But I... I know that as the book of Romans unfolds, it is very clear that we are not justified by our works. Yet here we're told that we will be judged by our works. This is a passage not about how to be justified before God, but this is a passage giving the principles of God's judgment. And when that judgment actually focuses on a person, then he deals with reality, what is found there in that person. Now God, as we will see in a moment, has a glorious way to cover us with righteousness. But he looks at the individual and deals with him according to the reality of his life. Is he one who by patience and well-doing is seeking after immortality? Or is he one who is contending with God, fighting with him and factious, and who is obeying wickedness rather than God? God will actually look at men and judge them by what they are. That's a great comfort, because what you are, you are. You don't have to try to be something else before the judgment of God. A third reason for savoring and and loving the judgment of God is that it is utterly individual. In, in verse uh, 9, we read, There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. 
every human being. And throughout this passage, the focus is not on collections of people, but upon persons, one at a time. And so you may be sure that when you stand before God, you will be there alone. And if your wife is a problem to you, or if your parents seem to be a hindrance to you, or if your children are, or your boss, there'll be no excusing then. Every individual stands before God as a person. And when he looks at you, it will be utterly without partiality. He will not accept anyone's face. That is, to see this one is important, and that one is wealthy, and the other one is having influence. No, none of that. Every person standing before God, whatever social status, whatever economic bracket, whatever color, every man and woman stands before God. That's a cherished truth of the righteous judgment of God. And we read here in these precepts of God's judgment that it will always be upon the basis of light received. No one will ever be judged for light he did not receive. Some of you have had much gospel teaching and much Bible understanding in your life. You will be expected much. Others have had relatively little. And from you will be expected less. From the person who has never heard the law or the gospel of God, he will be judged not by the scripture, but by the law of God that is written in his heart. For God has written in every human being his own moral law. And those who having the law written in their heart, though they have no written law, will perish on the basis of that law, because they have not even lived up to the light given them. And those who received the written law and were not able to live up to it, and did not apply for a gospel remedy for their own insufficiency, they will perish within the law. But the righteous judgment of God will never fall upon anyone for light that he has not received. And then the last principle I would suggest about why to cherish or warm the judgment of God is that though it is secret now, the day is coming when the judgment of God will be open. He has appointed a day. Now judgment is hidden from us. We speak of it and the world laughs. But someday it will be open. And the judgment will be in the hands of Jesus Christ. The one who is seated on the throne will be the very one who is the friend of sinners whose bleeding wounds plead for them, that one will be the judge of sinners. We have a friend at court, the righteous judge, even Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us. And on that day, the secrets of all men's hearts will be revealed. If you have found yourself fed up with the hypocrisy of men, their loathsome self-righteousness. On that day you will be vindicated, for you will see the secrets of men's hearts will be unfolded. Yes, the Old Testament saints cherished 
the judgment of God, though they saw it dimly. We who see it more fully in the gospel and in the epistles are to take that righteous judgment into our life and make it a precious part of our spiritual resource. But what do we do? Sometimes we, and many of us, may evade instead of cherishing the judgment of God. That's what a criminal does before civil law, doesn't he? He, uh, he says, well, maybe my crime won't be found out. And if it is found out, maybe I can flee to another jurisdiction. And if I am apprehended, maybe the legal process will break down somewhere. And even if I am in prison, maybe I can escape. He's got evasions all lined up as he contemplates this crime. And that's where we are with the judgment of God. We evade it. And this passage gives us three common evasions of God's judgment. The first is judging others. It starts out that way. Who You have no excuse when you judge another, for in passing judgment upon him you condemn yourself, because you are doing the very same things. By some mysterious quirk of human nature, we think that if we can be critical of others, then we have sheltered ourselves from the judgment of God. We have elevated ourselves beyond his judgment by condemning others. But in fact, the reverse is true. Because when we criticize another, we are indicating that that is a problem in our own life. And we are therefore adding to our own condemnation before God. Thus Jesus said, judge not, that ye be not judged. Instead of evading, it is heaping up judgment. Another common evasion of the human heart is to misunderstand the goodness of God. That is described for us in verse 4. Do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Do you not know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But by your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Here's a person whose life is going along well. There is enough money to pay the bills, enough health to meet the obligations of life. There is a secure position, and there is a warm home. And God is good. That person is tempted to think that since God is so good to me, he will never judge me. But in fact, the scriptures teach that the goodness of God that comes upon the unbeliever is designed to turn him to God, to bring him to conversion, to trust in God, to forsake his sin. But whoever presumes upon this goodness as if somehow we deserved it or were favorites of God, that person is amassing for himself a great store of God's wrath for the day of condemnation. By evading 
the judgment of God in presuming on his goodness, he is falling squarely into that judgment. And a third common evasion is listed here. That is, when God says it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers who will be justified. Here Paul, by the Spirit, is alluding to the fact that many of the Jews sought their membership in a group to be their protection from the judgment of God. They thought that if they were carefully hidden in the people of Israel, the judgment of God would not come on them personally. In fact, it was even written in the days of our Lord, if a person lives in Palestine, he will live in heaven. The trust in membership in a group. But here Paul, by the Spirit, says it is not the hearers of the law, not those who are having the privilege of having the law of God open to them, but the doers who will be justified. Not the great mass of Jews, but those who respond to the word of God. Alas, how many multitudes are there in the Christian church who have a false confidence of heaven because they are trusting in their membership in a group. They sing the hymns. They come to the worship. Their name may be on the roll. They may serve on a board. But deep down within their heart, they know they are not given to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. They are submerged in the group evading the personal judgment of God by their membership in the larger body. But that is a false evasion. And it leads to a false hope in the gospel. And it must be uncovered. For in the last day it shall be known. Not those hearers of sermons shall be justified, but the doers, those who took the word hid it in their heart, who repented and believed and became godly in Christ Jesus and were willing to suffer for him, those shall endure the righteous judgment of God. Now if God is just, and we can assume from all the scripture says, it is so utterly clear, God is just. We must not evade that judgment, but rather use the means that he has appointed in order to satisfy it. And he has appointed means. He has said to us, you have no righteousness of your own. There is none righteous, no, not one. Therefore I will impute to you my righteousness. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. By your believing in my Son, I will see you as in him, and his righteousness will cover you. And gradually, as you are in him, I will begin to impart to you my righteousness, so that that which I saw in faith in the beginning becomes a reality in your life. 
so what use does one make of the righteous judgment of God? The very first thing you must do is to believe in his offer of his appointed means. The scripture says that Christ suffered for us, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. And every person here who thus far has trusted in his own abilities, his own righteousness, his own respectability, will have to abandon all of that and transfer his trust so that he is holy in Christ, yielded to him, given to him, in love with him. That's building on the righteous judgment of God. Since God is just, he has the right to appoint any means he will to justify his people. And he has appointed that those who put their trust in Jesus will find satisfaction before his righteous bar of judgment. Have you done that? Have you given your heart to Christ so that you are his? That's where you must begin. You can never cherish the righteous judgment of God until you do. Then having done that, may I suggest that you go on to take all of life into the account of God's judgment. If God is a righteous judge and you are cherishing that truth about him, then all your actions come under the scrutiny of that judgment. Your thought life somehow suddenly is illumined to be in need of healing and cleansing. Your financial life is out of order and would not bear the scrutiny and the searchlight of the Holy Spirit. You have not provided things honest in the sight of all men. Your home life is in shambles and someday you're going to have to answer for your care of your wife and your children. All of a sudden you see that all of life is under God's scrutiny. Except your righteousness, said Jesus, exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. You shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Cherishing the righteous judgment of God means that my life is brought into conformity with God. And I begin with my heart. I ask him to mortify the sin within it. To cultivate the graces of Christian living within it. So that my heart being right begins to set my actions and thoughts and words in order. Alexander, the great Greek general, had a soldier in his unit who was cowardly. And in the midst of battle, when the heat came on strong, he turned and ran. Alexander's men prevailed anyway. But later when he heard of this man who had deserted the ranks under fire, he called for him to his tent. And when he saw the man, he said, Son, what is your name? Alexander. 
said the young man to the older general, the same name. Whereupon the general said to him, young man, either change your behavior or change your name. And that's what God says to his people. If you are my people, either change your behavior or change your name. Bring your life under the righteous judgment of God. Now, don't wait for the last day. Let it be scrutinized now that you may be ready for the last day. And friends, everyone who cherishes the righteous judgment of God does not dread that last day. Why should we dread it? Do faithful subjects who are loyal to their king, do they dread the return of the monarch when he comes back from a distant place? Or do they welcome him? Do faithful employees who have been busy at their tasks, do they dread the return of their boss? Or do they look forward to it as a way to report to him what they have been doing in his name? And so with everyone who is in Christ, we do not dread the righteous judgment of God. We anticipate it. We long for it. We pray for it to come. Because then all that has been secret will be made known. Some hidden service which no one before had ever known of, will be announced from the mountaintops. Some hidden suffering you have endured for Christ will suddenly be known. Some sacrifice you made that the work of Christ may go forward and which the left hand never allowed the right hand to know about will suddenly be revealed. We don't have to dread we long for the appearance of our blessed Lord, the righteous judge. And if you dread it today, I ask you to examine your heart. Are you in Christ? Is your life under his scrutiny? And are you anticipating his blessed return? All oh, dear friends, the great motto of the Christian life is, Thou, God, seest me. And dear friends, the great purpose of the Christian life is holiness. Taking the grace that God gave us and bearing fruit from that grace so that when he returns, he can see that there is something to show for the saving grace he deposited in us fruits of grace. Would you endure suffering? Then do what Jesus did. When he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but he committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Everyone who suffers may commit himself or herself to the righteous judge, and all will be well with you. The Old Testament saints, how they loved the judgment of God. I want to just read 
two or three verses from Psalm 96 and let you in conclusion see this beauty. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yea, the world is established, it shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the wood sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his truth. Let us pray. O righteous Father, we thank Thee for making known to us the precepts of Thy holy judgment, that we may be utterly assured and live without fear before Thee. Grant us much grace not to evade Thy righteous judgments with inventions of our own, but to seize upon that one way appointed by Thee in Christ, that we may be ready for thy judgment. O Lord, take our lives, make them strong with righteousness and holiness. Fill them with hope as we look to the last day. And give us much grace, O Lord, to cherish thy righteous judgment as the basis of that hope, through Jesus Christ our Savior. Amen. <laughs>